back in Auckland, way, about, way, way back in about 1994, I used to work at Auckland Hospital. I was a wardsman, or an orderly, is what they say in New Zealand. I was an orderly, and they stationed me within the ambulance bay. So when the ambulances would rock up, um, I would help take the patients off the ambulance, put them back on, dealt with specific emergencies, etc., etc. take them up to their wards. Sometimes I would do collection, uh, hold people down in, uh, in the emergency because they were, they were like either high on drugs or alcohol, um, help nurses so they could get their stomachs pumped or they had to get injected. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Now, what, what's really interesting is that when you do start a new job, you are usually given a requirement, a set of requirements, a set of responsibilities that you were given within that job. So I knew what my specific things were. Now, when I first arrived, that was really interesting because I knew the basic necessities of what was required from me, but there were so many other things that I had to take initiative on, and I learned that over time. And so over time, I realized, although outwardly I recognized what I had to do, there was also within the code of conduct a standard of integrity that was required by me because I was dealing with the public and was required by all of the employees that we had to conduct ourselves in a certain way that reflected the Auckland Health System, Auckland Hospital, and specifically orderlies within Auckland Hospital. Because what was really neat is that most of the orderlies were Polynesians. So there was just a whole bunch of islanders walking around and because there were a whole bunch of islanders walking around, if someone did cause trouble, there was a whole bunch of islanders to stop the trouble from getting out of hand. That was always really comforting. Now, over the past few weeks, actually over the past few months, we have been looking at the book of Hebrews. And as we've been looking through the book of Hebrews, and I know I share this over and over and over again, but the focus of the book of Hebrews was to communicate to this church in Jerusalem how great Jesus Christ is, how superior Jesus Christ is to all of their traditions and to everything they work themselves through. There's a lot of theology that takes place, and about midway through chapter 10, there is a change of tone within the book. Within about midway through of chapter 10, we find the practical applications of having an understanding of such theology of understanding how great Jesus is. And the encouragement of the saints in that knowledge is now to be demonstrated and now to be expressed. For example, in chapter 10, verse 22, we read that we are to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We are told in chapter 10 to hold fast the confession of hope without wavering in verse 23. We are told that we are to consider each other, to stir one another up to love and good works in verse 24. And in verse 25, we are told that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves, the gathering. We are not to neglect such things because we are to meet together. Then that same example of how we're supposed to be living is demonstrated in Hebrews chapter 11. When we looked at, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, the relationship that every individual had with God that we now have because of Jesus Christ and that it was a relationship based upon faith. And that faith stirred the obedience that was required in that relationship, that that faith drew them closer to himself. And it was faith that pleased God, not the action. And the Pharisees are a classic example of this. They were people of great action. 
they were people of great conforming to the standards that were required of their so-called spirituality, and yet Jesus says that they were whitewashed tombs. Jesus says that they were further away than anybody else, and that we have to be very careful we don't fall into such a trap of religiosity. And that's what's addressed in chapter 11. And then last week we had a wonderful word from Pastor Ben when he shared about the central focus, the vital, uncompromising reality upon which everything else is built, and that is the vision of Jesus Christ, that we are, as he said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, His first point was that we are to lay aside, we are to strip away and lay aside every weight and the sin that entangles. We are to have that vision of place, that his vision and place of where we are going to. That we are to remember the word of God. We are to help each others, uh, sorry, help others finish and to finish well. We are to remind ourselves of the blessings that we have in Christ. That we are to be prepared for the inevitable. And finally, we are to cultivate a life of worship in awe and gratitude. And so, it is in this closing chapter of chapter 13 that the writer specifically conveys a series of instructions of what the Christ-centered theology is to look like. Because when you read through it, there's a lot of information. There's a, like little excerpts here and here and here as you read through this final chapter. But see, this is why so much time is spent within the previous chapters of the book in establishing the great theology of who Jesus Christ is. I heard a preacher once say this, that when you have the correct theology, that automatically results in the correct life. Why? Because the foundation you have is solid. The foundation you have is not based upon your emotion. The foundation you have is not based upon your action. The foundation you have is based upon Jesus Christ. You see, you get your view of Jesus right, and the outworking of his righteousness will follow naturally in our lives also. So when Pastor Ben finished last week, he quoted this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. It says this, therefore, meaning all of those truths that led up to this point here, all of the information that's been communicated to the church, all of the realities about who Jesus is, he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We have now a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Because our God is not shaken. We have a priesthood that will never end. Why? Because our priest is eternal. This is the reality that we have right now in Jesus Christ. And from here, we continue as the writer goes into specifics. See, what does living in an unshakable kingdom look like? How does one live in a kingdom that lasts to eternity? What should we do as followers of Jesus Christ, and how is that outworked, and how we conduct ourselves in day-to-day life. And that's what we're going to look at today, because today, I have just four words for you. I don't have any other slides except these four words, because these are four words that are repeated over and over and over again. So I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the greatness of Jesus Christ and that he is so much better than anything that this world has to offer. 
that he is so much better than our traditions and our ways of thought or anything like that. Rather, that he is superior to everything else we encounter and that you, as our Lord, have drawn us into a relationship with yourself. So this morning, I pray for us that we might have sensitive hearts to your spirit, that you will help me to speak clearly and to communicate the truth. May I be your mouthpiece and that all glory and honor and majesty be directed to you. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you now as your children. Father, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the life of worship that is to be lived in reverence and awe is shown in several ways. And it's in these four words. Let, well, not four words, four titles. There's more than four words up there, I just realized. There's five words. (laughs) Maths was never my strong point. Okay. (laughs) Oh, okay. Four titles. Let... Do not, remember, and do. I'll put the do in quotes because they are established in certain, or sorry, communicated in certain phrases within the passage. For example, that word do, we have uh, keep, we have obey, we have pray. And that all consists of the things that we do as people that live in this kingdom that is unshakable and eternal. You'll see this pattern throughout the whole chapter. You'll see these, re- these words repeated over and over again. And these words are repeated in connection to three specific areas of this life of worship, this life of reverence, and this life of awe. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Hebrews chapter 13. If you've got it in a, on your phone, that's fine. Have a look at it on your phone. Don't, don't look over at Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is, or, or listen to Finn said what, okay? Ha- open it up in your Bibles. And we'll work our way through this chapter together because it's really exciting. This is what a life of reverence and awe is to be, how it's to be manifest. First, the word is let. In verse 1, we read this. Let brotherly love continue. Stop there. That word let basically means to permit, to allow, to grant. And, and, and the fact that the charge of letting is from the get-go implies something really important here because he says what? He says, let brotherly love continue. Now, this made me think, why on earth would he say let brotherly love continue? It's because it has a chance of brotherly love stopping. There is that chance. He stirs up this church in Jerusalem to say, you let brotherly love continue because there is the reality of our own sinful natures to be dealt with here. There are issues that need to be dealt with. This first act of worship is that of love, that love among the brethren, genuine love, sacrificial love, others-focused love, benevolent love, that love is present and should be present because Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, this love should be continuing. See, we are told in the Scriptures that the love of the brethren is the defining factor by which we are identified. John chapter 13, verse 35. You all know this. We all know this. Hereby shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. In his letter to the church, one John, in 1 John, he wrote that whoever loves his brother abides in light. Actually, when you look through 1 John, there are numerous times where John says, I am not writing a new commandment to you. 
This is not a new commandment I'm writing, but one that has been from the beginning. What? That you love one another. That's what it's demonstrated time and time again within the Scriptures. 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 says this, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. That's the reality of what love is when love, God's love, is present within each of us and demonstrated to one another. The fact that such an instruction is given suggests that we as a church can be somewhat unloving. And that's a condemnation placed upon us as the people of God. How on earth can a body of people that have been loved so much by a God who is great be unloving? How on earth can someone in a group like this, where we are taken from different walks of life, different countries, different eras, different ways of thought, how on earth can someone feel alone in this body of people? Why on earth should we as the church of Jesus Christ be challenged to, look, keep on loving? Why on earth should love stop? That's what I don't get. And I, I was thinking about that. Why? Why don't I love everybody the same? Why don't I love with Jesus' heart? I am told within the Scriptures over and over and over again to love one another, to forgive one another, which is a demonstration of, of love, to accept one another, which is another demonstration of love. Why on earth then am I told to let that continue? It's because it stops because I have my eyes on you as a person and not as a child of God. Actually, no, I, I think I've done that wrong. No, I think I have my eyes on me and what you do to make me feel in my flesh. That's it. If we are of the same blood, if we are of the same body, if we are of the same family, if we have the love of Jesus Christ flowing within us, do you know what we should have? Unity. You know what we should have? Acceptance. You know what we should have? understanding. And yet the writer here says to us, we should let love continue. Because I know for a fact that when I don't agree with someone, it's got nothing to do with them. It's got the fact that I've got my eyes off Jesus and on me. You made me feel this way. You did that to me. Or, even worse, become like a Pharisee and think I'm better than somebody else. That's ridiculous. But this is why he says we have to let love, brotherly love, continue for a group of people that have all experienced the mercy, the acceptance, and the love of Jesus Christ. What gives me the right to hinder that same love of Jesus to those around me? See, the more I examine that reality shows that I allow my issues, I allow my desires, I allow my selfishness to take priority over what the Lord Jesus wants, over what the Lord Jesus' heart desires, and that's it. Therefore, the first act of worship as a part of, of living, part of God's kingdom, is that we are to be a people of genuine fellowship, of genuine fellowship. And this is demonstrated in the very next verse. If you have a look in the very next verse, we read this. Do not neglect to show 
hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do not. There it is up there. See, the first thing is to let. We are to let brotherly love continue. And then it continues. If, if we have truly experienced the love of Jesus and demonstrate that love to others within the body, we are told then, do not. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Now, I, I, didn't, look, I didn't look at what the original language was for this word hospitality. In, in my layman's terms, when I looked at the word hospitality, I first did, thought of the word hospital. What does a hospital do? A hospital cares for others. A hospital helps those that are unable to help themselves. A hospital takes people in and serves them and aids them and helps them to get back on their feet. That's what a hospital does. Essentially, what this verse is saying here when it says do not, it means this. It says don't forget what you're here for. You are here to serve. You are here to put others on their feet. Let's, let's not, not carry on because it says there about strangers unawares. Let's look out, not look outside at the moment. Let's look inside. Let's look at our church. So it means showing hospitality to brothers and sisters within the church that may need someone to come alongside them and encourage them. It may mean that as uncomfortable or as inappropriate, not inappropriate, as inconvenient as it might be, opening our doors up for somebody within the church. Maybe may just praying for someone in the church and having someone come alongside and say, how can I pray for you? How can I be there for you? See, what's really interesting is that in these first few verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, this focuses mainly on relationships. Specifically, I like to look at it as fellowship. This is what it looks at. So it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Yeah, that, that's, that's about relationship. That's about being involved. That's about stepping out. When you look in verse 3, it says this, remember. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now, I remember when Julie, oh, Julie's left? She's upstairs. I remember when Julie first went over to Japan. And I, I met with a brother, and we were having a chat in the brother. And, and the brother was really honest, and he said, you know what's really bad? Sometimes when it's out of sight, it's out of mind. When people leave, and you're like, meh, and then that's it. And then you don't actually pray for them until they come back for a visit, or someone shares a bit of news about them, or anything like that. And sometimes we view that in regards to the church as a whole. We have our own little body, we have our own little church, we have our own little community, but we are part of something greater and something bigger. And the fact that they're even now, today, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that are persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are in prison right now. Why? Because they have a Bible. Why? Because they stand for the Lord that we stand for, except the Lord that we stand, Lord, except for them in the context they find themselves in, they could be killed. They could be imprisoned. So we are told not only to let brotherly love continue, not only are told not to neglect to show hospitality, we are also told to remember 
others within the body. This is, this is what we are told. This is how a life of reverence and awe is demonstrated in, in the fellowship of the saints, though with those that are here and those that are not here. I love what Pastor Ben shared just now when he shared about how you're able to serve within the church, behind the scenes, behind the scenes. And, and you don't know, Uncle Sun Ling has been a, a wonderful servant of, of the body of believers, which a lot of us don't know. And, and I thank God for Uncle Sun Ling. But it's like that, it's out, of, out of sight, out of mind. You just expect it when, uh, when Brother Nick was up here sharing about it and, you know, this is what he's been doing. That's a lot. That's a lot that's been done. And no, no one actually knew that's what's been done. But he did it because he wanted to honor his God. He wanted to honor the Lord. And so we have to remember those. And we're told to remember those that are in prison. This is the reality of what we have. You want to know how to live a life of reverence and awe in the kingdom that's unshakable and eternal in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? It starts here, in fellowship. Fellowship with him, letting brotherly love continue, not neglecting to show hospitality to those around us as well as to those that are strangers, and to remember those that are persecuted, remember those that are in compromising situations for the gospel. I think that, I think we can do that. I think we can do that. So that's the first thing. A life of reverence and awe means that we are a people living in genuine fellowship. That's the first one. Second one, jump down to verse 4. It says this. Let marriage be held in honor. There's the next let. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, yes, the charge here, I'm not going to focus on, on what marriage is. I'm not going to focus on the marriage bed or anything like that, but I, I do want to take it a practical application here. The charge here is not just looking at being sexually pure. That's not what makes it important. What makes it important is what marriage represents. In the scriptures, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. In Ephesians, we are told that husbands are charged to love their wives in a sacrificial manner. 525, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. See, the faithfulness and fidelity of the Lord Jesus is portrayed in this picture of marriage. The, the, the committing of oneself completely to another. You, you read this in the, in the vows that are said within a marriage ceremony. When they commit each other, and I shared this before, it's not a contract. The marriage vows are not a contract. They are a covenant. It, it, is, a, it is a covenant that states, irrespective of what it is, I am there for you. I am giving all of myself over to you. And the other person saying, and I'm giving all of myself over to you. You become one flesh. There is an intimacy portrayed in the marriage relationship that Jesus Christ portrays as well when he speaks about here. He wants us to understand that as we look at the fidelity and the faithfulness and the purity of the marriage bed, that is the relationship that Jesus desires with his church. Therefore, we as the church should look at our relationship in the same manner as something precious as something to be protected, as something to be held close and never let go. I know for a fact that when you are in a, a close relationship, you, you defend the ones you love. 
you hold close to the ones you love. I know when people have said things, when I was growing up, when people have said things about my family, you can't talk about my mum like that. You can't say that. I remember one time, many, many years ago, I was teaching scripture at Kellyville High. Somebody made a comment, a young student made a comment about my wife, and I nearly punched him in the face. I didn't, but I got, I threatened him. And then I, I'm not teaching scripture there anymore. So that's, that's what happened. But the teacher, the teacher that was there in the room with me, they agreed with me. Not, not, they didn't tell me to punch the guy, but they understood because they went sort of too far. In their, in their effort to be funny, they went too far. See, why? Why would I get in such a, why would I be in such a way? It's because it's my wife. See, this is how our Lord is with us. We are his bride. He has committed himself 100% to us. That is evident by what he has done for us on the cross. It is evident. How much he cares for you is evident by what he was willing to do how he passionately pursued you, how we've been looking at this whole year, how he has a passionate pursuit of you where he was willing to give everything that he is and everything that he has to win you to himself. Now that he has you, he won't let you go. He wants to protect that relationship. And so he says, what this verse here represents, how we are to protect that same relationship, which means this, if you don't protect that relationship, does that mean you don't fully understand what you have in the person of Christ? And I understand this as well. See, we've been looking at the superiority of Jesus, this whole series. And we've had some great sermons from everybody that's been up here. That, that sounded really bad because it felt like I was talking about myself. But like Pastor Ben and Jono and Andrew and everyone that's been up here and shared the word, looking at the greatness of Jesus. And, and this is what happens when we are overly exposed to the same thing over and over again, you know what happens with us? We sort of become numb to it, don't we? We become numb to it. We have heard so many sermons about who Jesus is, about what Jesus has done, and what we do as a people is we look at it and we think, yeah, I've heard it before. Uh, there is an old, old hymn, and I think I've quoted it before, there's an old hymn that I used to sing when I first became a Christian. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. And, and, and the whole, there's, a, I don't know, maybe about 15 or so verses. It's just, it's really long, short, short verses, little, little stanzas. But that's what we do. We don't, we don't say, tell me the old, old story anymore. We don't. And so we need to get back to the basics of who Jesus is, of what he's done, and ask him to refresh our souls. Ask him to open our eyes. Ask him to draw us closer to himself so we don't become stagnant in our relationship with him and become, for want of a better word, and become bored. But this is what we are being charged with. As the Lord Jesus Christ has consecrated himself to us as his church, it is a consecration revealing the seriousness of his love to us as his people, it is important that we understand the sacredness of marriage that's been appointed by God because it reflects the sacredness of the relationship we share with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why the second act of worship is that of, of living a life of willing consecration. This is why when you come along, it goes on after this. In verse 4 and verse 5, it goes to the do part. It says this in verse 5. 
keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Why is money referred to there? Because that is the big thing people are going for today. We think if we have all the money in the world, it'll be okay. If we think we're going to be financially secure, then I'm set for life. That's what we think. You look at what Jesus said about the rich man, the parable of the rich man. What did he say? He said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. It is important for us that we don't lose sight, not only of who Jesus is, but what Jesus is doing. Our security is never to be held within things of this world. Our security is not to be held within the house that we have or the cars that we drive, even the relationships that we share with other people. That is not where our security lies. The security lies in knowing who Jesus is because he's the one that never leaves nor forsakes. I saw a video just recently, and it was a, it was a classroom, and it was a, a psychology class or whatever it was, and, 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 the, and the, uh, the professor asked a mother to come stand up, stand up, and she said, and he said, can you write who are the most important people in your life? And so she wrote, she wrote uh, her husband and her children. And he goes, uh, who else can you write that's really important in your life? She wrote her parents and her siblings. He goes, who else? What they, as, as you go further out, who else is really important? And then she went, and she, so she went that, and then she went, oh, you know, so families, like uncles and aunties, you know, grandparents. And then she went sort of like friends and really good friends. And then she went sort of like, oh, there's her neighbors that she doesn't know very well. And so he, just went through, he went through all the relationships. She had this massive list of names. Then he said to her, all right, let's say, People on this list had to die. I thought, that's pretty cold. So you had to get rid of these people. Like, basically, these people's lives are in your hands, and you had to get rid of certain people. Who would you get rid of? Who would you kill? And so she started off. Started off at the IK. It'd be like the shopkeepers, her boss, things like that. She'd kill off those people first. Again, who else? And so she would write, wipe off, like, four or five names at a time. And obviously, as it went through, who else would you kill? Who else would you kill? Who else would you kill? Until the only names left on the board were her husband and her kids. And he goes, you have to kill two people. Who will they be? She wiped off the names of her kids. <gasps> and then everyone was, it was like, well, why did you do that? And she said this. She said, I, I love my kids. I love my family, but in the end, my kids will grow up, they'll get married, they'll have their own kids, they'll have their own lives. It'll just be me and my husband. My husband's been with me from the, from the beginning, he'll be with me at the end. So if anyone else was going to be there, it would be him. And everyone was like, oh, that's so nice, that's so nice. But this is the reality for us in our relationship with Jesus Christ that is the primary relationship that lasts to eternity. He who will never leave us nor forsake us. He who would be, who is there. He who died for us and rose again the third day. He who took upon himself all the sin and all our offenses and all our wrongdoings. He took upon himself so that you and I could say to him, Abba, Father. He is there. 
So that's the reason why he compares, it's compared to money. Money, no, that's not the priority. Your friendships, no, that, that's not the priority. To cherish the relationship of Jesus Christ is the priority that we are to have. And here's what's really interesting, is that when you have that in place, when you have that right relationship with Jesus Christ, well, you do treat your wife well. You treat your children well. You treat your friends well. That is how a life of reverence and awe is lived in this kingdom that is unshakable. When the focus is on him and on him alone. Because he is the one that equips you. And like I said before, it is his righteousness that flows out into the lives of others. His righteousness and his goodness. And so, so far we've got, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect hospitality. Remember those that are in prison. And then it says this, keep, keep your life free from the love of money. Prioritize the things in your life. You see, all of those, I look at terms of fellowship from verse 4 onwards to verse 4, verse 5, even verse 7. I look, at the, I look at that as our lives being that of consecration. To keep our lives free of the love of money, that's about being consecrated. Remember, consecration is not about abstaining from things. Consecration is about how you are, you are committing yourself to something else. See, abstaining is easy. Not doing something is easy. But you want to replace what you're not doing with someone else. Or yeah, with someone else, not with something else, with someone else. Then in verse 7, we read this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember your leaders. This one, I don't want to spend too much time on. But this is something that God really convicted me about when I first became a Christian. I shared with my leaders when I was growing up as a young Christian that the best thing I could do for them is to make sure my relationship with Jesus Christ is growing. That's it. I was listening to a sermon by Jim Simbler, and he said, uh, the effectiveness of a pastor or a leader of a Bible study group or of a Sunday school teacher is not demonstrated by the amount of people that are there when they speak. It is demonstrated by the amount of people that are discipled and are growing in their own relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how it's measured. So my role is to equip you. My role is to give you the tools and to give you the avenues where you are growing and serving and, 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 and learning and maturing in your own walk with Jesus Christ. That's what my role is. That's what your Bible studies leader role is. That, that's what we are there for. So it says, remember your leaders. Why? Because I have to give an account to my God with how I treated you. I, I have an eternal, an eternal weight that has been placed upon me to say, wow, have I, have I honored God and how I've cared for you? And I'm still growing and I'm still maturing and I still make mistakes. But praise God that he is directly involved within his church. And within his people. So, the first act of reverence and awe, the first act of worship, is that of genuine fellowship. The second act of worship that we can demonstrate as saints and followers of Jesus Christ is that of willing consecration. That you desire to be consecrated to the things of God. 
The third, I'm going to jump down to verse 15. Jump down to verse 15. It says there, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So, to offer a sacrifice of praise is the willing recognition of the person of Jesus Christ. See, if you remember in the previous verses, we are partaking of something which we have no right to. That's in verse, I think, 10. In verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We partake of a right that we've been, we've been taking of something that we have no, we have no actual right to. It's been given to us because of what Jesus has done. It's been given to us because the blood that has been shed. It's been given to us because we have been remade within the person of Jesus Christ. We've been made new creations. So we, pay t- we partake of that which we have no right to. We are brought into holy places. We are sanctified through his blood. We have our reproach removed and have gained entry to an eternal city. Then the natural result would be that of appreciation and thanksgiving. This is why the word used is that we are to offer the fruit of praise. You know why it's called the fruit of praise? Because fruit grows naturally. That's why. Have you ever been in a situation where you have just shouted for joy? Have you ever heard some great news and just like, whoa, that's exactly what, no one forced it out of you. It just grew naturally. Last night, Australia was beaten by the All Blacks. Now, was I happy? Yeah, I was okay about it. But in 2000, and, when was the last one? 2015. In 2015, when New Zealand destroyed Australia in the final of the World Cup, I remember the final try, the final try that that Bowden Barrett scored to seal the game and confirm back-to-back World Cup wins for New Zealand. No country has ever done that. But when he scored that try, I was sitting there. It was Sunday morning. I was preaching that day. It was Sunday morning. And I remember when he scored that try, no one else was around. It was just me in the lounge watching it. I jumped out of my chair and I did one of those silent screams. Just went. Was that forced? No. It was the natural response to the situation that I was faced with right there and right then. Therefore, with the truths that have been shared within this passage, I am told I'm to offer the fruit of praise. Why? Because I can now enter into a holy place because of the blood that Jesus shed. That I am now partaking of things that I have no right to partake of. That I am now a citizen of an eternal kingdom that is unshakable. That I had my sin washed away. That I have made a new creation and been given a new heart. That I have the Spirit of God dwelling within me. That I've been given the Word of God. I've been given the people of God. And I've been given the calling of God within my life. You know what that should do? That should get me out of my couch and go... Then I offer the fruit of praise that naturally grows. Why? Because everything directs me to do so. That's why. And the reason why we don't see this and and the richness that is found within the Scriptures, I think is because we spend so much time going through it over and over and over again. We become numb to it. We need to ask God to refresh our souls. 
to see as he sees, to hear as he hears, to have a heartbeat that beats in time with his, so that when we look at the person that is next to us and they don't know Jesus, our heart cries and says, I want to love this person and share Jesus with them. That when I look within the church and I see somebody that's alone in the church, that I actually come up alongside them and say, bro, how are you going? That that brotherly love really does continue. That we do not neglect hospitality. That, 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 that we remember those that are less fortunate than us, but yet are, are standing for the kingdom of God. That we are willing to consecrate ourselves and, and, and not allow the love of this world and the things of this world to crowd out the heart of God and the work of God that He's trying to do with every single one of us. And that when we understand what we have been given, we might cry forth the praise of God. Because you see, I mean, the praises that are written within the Psalms, if you go from Psalm 146 to Psalm 150, you will read the most common phrase there over and over again in each of those Psalms. You know what that is? Praise the Lord. There is strength in praise. You know why there's strength in praise? Because praise is the acknowledging of someone else and what someone else has done. You're not thinking about yourself. You're praising what other people have done. You're praising what other people are doing. And so this is what, when you look at what God has done, you praise him for that. This is why in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, which is a really common verse, everybody should know that verse off the top of their head. When it says who we are and what Jesus Christ is, what? that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a chosen generation, that we are a holy nation, that we are a people belonging to him. For what purpose? The second half of that verse, you are made these things to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why you are made those things to communicate God's praise. In other words, you are made those things to acknowledge the greatness of who he is. You are made those things to recognize and then communicate that reality to those around you. That's why you are made those things. So in Psalm 146, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and the song of praise is fitting. Psalm 148, verse 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights. Psalm 149, verse 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. Psalm 150, six verses, praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
there is strength in praise because everything in that psalm looks at what he has and what he has done and everything that we have available to us. We praise and we recognize and we acknowledge. That's what praise is. This is how a life of reverence and awe is lived out in a kingdom that is unshakable and eternal, founded within the person of Jesus Christ. That we live a life of genuine fellowship. That we live a life of willing consecration. And that we live a life of natural praise. You see, that is how we are identified as belonging to such a kingdom. You can tell, and if this has ever happened to you, this has happened to me a number of times, but you can tell when people see me, people know that I'm not from Australia. Why? Because I look like this. And they recognize that. When I left Chatswood, uh, I was at Carissa's birthday party, and uh, Chris and Alyssa's birthday party, and I left to go home, and I'm walking back, and there's a, uh, it was a nightclub that I was walking past, and there was a big, big Polynesian guy standing outside, just his arms there, talking to some people. I'm walking past. He looks at me and goes, hey, bro. <laughs> you know what my response was? Hey, bro. <laughs> and carried on walking. That was it. You know why he could do that? Because he could recognize me. He could recognize me. That was it. That was it. Nathaniel experiences the same things now. When he's walking, he'll see bouncers as he's walking down the street, and they'll be like, And he'll be like, hey. (laughs) Why? Because there's things about us that others recognize of being part of that particular race. We are part of the kingdom of God. And our lives of reverence and awe should be recognized by those around us and by those who even are not a part of our kingdom. That when they look at us, they see love that's genuine, fellowship that's real. When they look at us, they see a life that's different and a life that's consecrated. That when they see us, they see a life of joy and a life of praise. Why? Because it's focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, who truly is better than. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we thank you so much that you are a God that is great, that you are a God that is superior, that you truly are a God that is better than. And as we leave here today, we ask that you will open our eyes, that you will refresh our hearts to see more of you. Help us, Lord, not to be complacent, not to be comfortable, not to be relaxed with the sheer greatness of who you are. We hear time and time again, every week we are here and we hear your word preached and we walk away unchanged. Father, I ask that you would take the truths of your word, that by your spirit you will stir us, that by your Spirit you will make us uncomfortable, that by your Spirit you will challenge us so that we might be refreshed in the greatness of your being. Father, give us a vision for you. Fill our eyes, oh our God, with a vision of the cross. Fill our hearts with love for Jesus, the Nazarene. Father, we thank you now and ask you to work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.